Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Coach's Corner, where we talk with other coaches and people who inspire, move, and motivate people to action. Listeners will learn about coaching and the many coaching niches and have an opportunity to ask questions of the many wonderful coaches who are my guests. I'm Coach Andrew Poritz from Ingenuity Coaching. I help people to discover and fulfill their passions and greatness. My mission is to inspire and challenge you to dream big dreams and with my coaching, help you to manifest those dreams into reality. You can visit my website at www.myfuturecoach.com. If you're listening live and you want to call in with a question, the phone number is 646-929-2893. Again, that's 646-929-2893. You'll be able to listen to the show on the phone, and if you press the number one, that will let me know you want to ask a question. There's also a live chat room right on the show page, so feel free to join in. My guest this week is Peter Marcus. Peter is a business life coach in beautiful Monterey County, California. For the past 17 years, he's had the privilege of working with many women and men in the USA and the UK in a variety of settings. Peter is also, and perhaps best known, as an emergent technology developer. He won the Product of the Year Award from Popular Science in 1997 for QFTV and the Flat Screen TV, the world's first plasma television. Peter also has a show on Blog Talk Radio called My Talk About at www.blogtalkradio.com slash mytalkabout. So, Peter, are you with us? I am here. And I'm listening to you talk about me. It's, um, I don't often get that. I'm normally talking about others. Thank you for doing that for me. It's great to be here with you today. Oh, it's, it's, it's wonderful to have you. And, um, you know, I, I, I love the sound of your voice, Peter. It reminds me uh, sort of a cross between uh, there's a little John Lennon in there and... and um, What's that actor who's in every other movie? Every other movie. I, oh, 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 my God, I'm going blank. He played Austin Powers' father. And that's the least uh, known thing he's known for. Right, who's just brilliant, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. Michael, um, is it Michael? Or yes, or? Michael Caine. I thank you, Michael Caine. Okay. I'll, I'll, we'll tell you a little story about sure. Michael Okay. Um, going back to 1972, um, I was on vacation with um, I actually was living in Malta and I had uh, a vacation time in Malta with my girlfriend at that time who still lived in the United Kingdom and um, she came over and her girlfriend was um, another uh, beauty person she was in the modeling and beauty business and her girlfriend was another uh, um, Miss UK, um, and her name was Shakira, and she was married to Michael Caine. Yes. So, of course, short story here, we were invited to go for dinner um, at Michael's hotel room, in Michael's hotel room, because he was filming a movie there at the time, and Shakira was in town, and Carol was in town, and I was in town, so we got together, and we went to this fabulous suite in the Hilton Hotel, and we arrived there ready for dinner. And three of us sat down. And I couldn't understand this. There was Shakira and there was Carol and myself. And uh, Michael never appeared. 
And, you know, a couple of minutes into it, well, 15 minutes into it, I'm thinking, well, this is strange. The table's set for three. There are supposedly four of us. So I, I think I should ask the question. You know, there's like an elephant in the room. And I said, <laughs> so excuse me, but, but where's Michael? And, uh, and I got the answer, oh, he's not joining us. And I thought, okay. Later on, it so happened that he did and he came out, and he'd had a, an engagement, he was doing something, and he came out, and, and that was my, uh, and I only have a very, very brief meeting with him, but that was my claim to fame with Michael Caine in Malta in 1972 in the midst of him making a movie. Wow. I, I've seen, uh, I've seen uh, pictures of his wife, very beautiful woman. Yeah, very, very much so, very much so. She was a Miss United Kingdom, and... Um, my girlfriend at the time was a woman named Carol Redhead, and she was a Miss United Kingdom, and they knew each other, and they'd been on the same circuit together, and uh, and uh, so that was it. And there was a chance, and I thought, oh, I get to meet Michael Caine because, you know, I mean, he was a superstar when I was, you know, a mid twenties year old guy. I mean, Michael Caine is probably ten years older than I am, and, uh, and just a superstar in those days, of course. So, but I got all, you know, I got really close to actually having dinner. I did share the dinner time in his suite, and we got to spend a few moments, but we never had dinner together. That was the story. Well, my close, was close enough. Close, right, yeah. Close. You know, I found that my life has been like that. I, I really have to um, accept that, you know, that gifts have been bestowed upon me. You know, you said, uh, you know, I've got some of the, 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 the sound of, uh, of John Lennon. And of course, I grew up in Manchester, which is 20 about 21 miles away from Liverpool. Okay, Manchester, that would make sense there. <laughs> right, Manchester was a big town. Right. And we, were, we were the place that the, 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 the young groups from Liverpool would come and play in Manchester because they'd get paid to play in Manchester. And, uh, and of course, Manchester had its own pop music business at the same time. And uh, there was um, always a lot of rivalry. But Liverpool, um, Liverpool became famous for music for one simple reason, and, and in my book, and that was because of America, because the Cunard ships used to come into Liverpool from New York, and the sailors would bring American music with them. And the fellows who lived locally would buy the records from them in the local pubs, and then they'd copy them, and that's how rock and roll came to the north of England. And, and that's how you got that sound. Also. That's where... That's where you get that. I think the Liverpool sound was a little bit different to the Manchester sound because they had uh, they were closer to the ocean and got more rain than us and nasal problems. Well, like I said, there's a little bit of a combination, a little bit of Lennon, a little bit of Kane, <laughs> and it makes for an interesting interesting sound. But I think if you probably made phony phone calls to Yoko Ono, it might freak her out. <laughs> Oh, other stories there. Other stories. I actually, uh, <laughs> I I saw I, I first saw the Beatles. I think when I was seventeen, and they um, they were working actually in um, on an island on one of the Channel Islands, just off the shore of England, between England and France. There's these couple of islands, and uh, one of them was a big enough island for a tourist spot. And uh, I was doing one of my uh, summer jobs. I was working uh, as a photographer on the beach, you know, taking photographs of all the happy holiday makers and 
I was 17 years old, you know, and having a good time and hanging out on the beach all day and speaking to people. Well, night times, I used to have to keep taking photographs because that was the only way I could afford to eat. Um, I'd go and work in the bars and the clubs, and uh, the Beatles came into town. Um, actually, I think before I'd even seen them in Manchester, so it must have been when I was 17, and, um, and they came in and they did... Um, a couple of nights at this big old dance hall there, you know, a huge stage out there in the middle of like a, a winter gardens kind of building. And mm. uh, it was the first time I'd seen them. And then at the end of that summer, I think they were probably close to the end of the summer, I saw them a couple of times again in Manchester. They came to Manchester to play. Um, but I did make a choice. I actually remember the third time they came into town, I made a choice and said, I'm going to go see the Trogs instead. Oh, uh. And, uh, yeah, so that was early days, of course, of, uh, of, of English, North of England music. What was, what, what was that What was that group, that one big song? What's it, I really got? No, what's the name of that song? Um, the Trugs did uh, The Girl Like You, was it? They did that one. Oh, yeah. Uh, and um, we had a lot of bands coming out of Manchester. I, I actually worked with some of them. I kept my photography going. You know, I decided that, I really enjoyed being a photographer. It figured well for me in my life. I got to meet people and talk to people and, and get to know them. And, and they get to know me. And, you know, I wasn't just this North of England boy growing up anymore. I was now out there doing something. And I actually took photographs for quite a while following that um, of the local bands and the local um pop TV shows and things like that. did a lot of photography for many years and really enjoyed it and had a great time. And so, so, that's, uh, uh, so there's a, a very interesting uh, career arc going on here. So from f- photographer um, <laughs> <laughs> to, uh, to uh, technology to coaching, and I, I, I don't know what's in between. Oh, well, I, I think they're all intertwined. I don't know... I don't know about the in-betweens. I feel that they're all intertwined. Um, by the time I was in my late 20s, I'd um, taken on some focus and I was involved in technology that um, that actually was coming out of Europe. Um, and I was, I was interested in the technology. I'd grown up in the furniture business. My family had grown up had been in the furniture business and I'd grown up in that. But the furniture business had changed in Europe following the, the Second World War. There were no trees. So uh, new component materials were built, particle board and laminated boards and things like that, and they'd make cabinet furniture from new materials. And I got interested in this, and my dad was involved with the component part of it. And, and uh, one day I was asked if I would... Um, take uh, some of this technology to the U.S. and make a presentation on behalf of the British Overseas Trade Board. So I joined the British Overseas Trade Board and went out and did some exports for a while. I had spent a few years prior to that in the import-export business and lived in Malta and uh, lived, uh, and worked in India and been around. So I-, I knew a little bit about it. But the technology ch- time uh, change came about that time for me. I got involved in in uh, the introduction of emergent technologies. In this instance, it was machine technology for uh, manufacturing of cabinet furniture, and I brought that 
and introduce that to the North American audience together with the British Overseas Trade Board and between. And then I decided that I really like this country and where else should I want to live? So um, I made another big change. I changed into a technology at that time and I made another big change and actually moved to North America to, in, to do the, the next couple of years of introduction of this um, emergent technologies uh, to uh, American manufacturing, and that's what I did. And, and what was your, your role in, in, in getting to product of the year? Uh, <laughs> um, well, I guess I, I stayed with technology for a while. In the late 70s, I was back in the UK, and I saw something that really appealed to me, and it was a little... Um, uh, stock exchange ticker machine and some, some of my friends were, were actually developing this and I thought oh this stuff's really cool I'm sure that this would go down really well in, in, in New York I was living in New York City I lived um, on Broadway between Broom Street and Grand Street in those years and, um, and so I bought a couple of these pieces back from uh, the UK and, and I went to the stock exchange and met people and went to some of the uh, banking houses and introduced this ticker technology uh, another group came in from the UK and we all we all did the introduction of tickers as they are known today uh, in LED and and that continued on for a couple of years I stayed together with LED I got a real like for display technologies and was involved in some of the early ballpark displays and railroad signs and hospital signage this moving message stuff um, in the late 80s, um, I was introduced to a new technology, um, a new technology to me called uh, Plasma. Plasma actually was developed in 1962 at the University of Illinois um, with a grant, I think, from uh, grant and funding from IBM and, um, and uh, uh, Owings Corning the glass people. Mm -hmm. So they did this new technology. These guys worked together through the next 10 years and came up with this thing called Plasma. Plasma was a great display. It looked like red LED displays, but, 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 uh, but thinner. So uh, the fellows who put this together actually uh, came out of IBM. IBM decided to get out of the Plasma business. They couldn't see it working in the small laptop market that they were developing and this was the late 80s, um, and uh, they sold, they did a, they allowed for a management buyout, they sold all their technology, all their patents, all their machinery to a small group based in New York City, a group that I knew, and asked me if I'd introduce that into the stock exchange to go alongside my LED ticker machines. Um, it was very early days, there was no way we could take it into the stock exchange, there was no way they would buy it, it was one color, it was very hot, um, so I didn't shelve it, but I actually decided to do some work on it. And I figured that if ever this type of technology was going to go anywhere, it was because it was going to have color to it. I said it was only one color. It was monochrome. It was red. Um, and I knew that color was being developed. In Japan, there was a lot of work going towards it. In North America, there was a lot of work. This group that I'd been involved with were very, very advanced with, it, with color. And... Um, and I thought, okay, so when color comes, this is a perfect monitor, perfect TV monitor. Mm -hmm. And, of course, that was the thought that was going on in Japan with many billions of dollars behind it. 
So I did a little bit of maneuvering and, and conversation, and I, I managed to get um, some of the raw display panels out of Japan into the U.S. and put together a small development team to actually create an interface that went from our analog television to a digital display. And um, the next few years was spent uh, developing this, putting the team together, making some um, advances in the technologies. Um, and it culminated in 96 by the company that I'd formed, QFTV, introducing the world's first flat screen TVs. And um, in February 97, we launched them to the public together with a New York store and Chicago catalog company called Hammaker Schlemmer. Oh, yeah. Hammaker Schlemmer introduced it on the front cover of their uh, February uh, 97 catalog, the world's first flat screen TV. There were, we made 20 of them. There were 20,000 bucks apiece. Wow. And they, and they were signed uh, by uh, Bill, the president of Hammaker Schlemmer, and myself. And, um, and at that time, Hammaker Schlemmer decided that they'd go all out with this brand new thing. They were real, they were very innovative when they were introducing product, products. They introduced the first toaster. They introduced the first answering machine. They introduced the first um, movable chair. Oh, they introduced so many things. But we came up with this TV. I made a deal with them um, about half a year before and agreed that they would get the first off the line. And um, so the opening day comes. I walk into their store, and they tell me that, yeah, we're going to have the store all done up, ready. We're going to invite some of the press. We're going to sell and send out press releases. I walk into the store. The store had been converted into what I could only say is the modern museum of television. Everything from the very first TVs to the most up-to-date, of course, the most up-to-date were the ones that we were introducing. They were covered up like, a, you know, they were shrouded up. They were covered in these, in these drapes, and uh, so nobody could see them. But all around this beautiful store on 57th Street, I'm sure you know it, you're a New Yorker. Oh, yeah. Wonderful store. Fabulous store. And this whole store was always jam-packed with fabulous TVs. Now, I say fabulous TVs because these were all collector's pieces. They'd collected them and got them all together from museums and private uh, homes. And Anyway, so they'd also done a great job of PR. And every television company that was represented in New York City was there with cameras because they'd all heard that the world's first flat TV was going to be shown. And... Um, and we did it, and we went out live on uh, <laughs> on TV, introducing this flat screen TV, and Habakkuk's Leather had a great success. The first 20 of them were sold so quickly. We put them in these stainless steel, brushed stainless steel cases, and they looked beautiful, and everyone was signed, and everyone was numbered, and, and it was a great, a great success. Um, at that moment, it was a great success to bring the first to market. That is awesome. Yeah. I wish I could have been there for that. Yeah, well, a lot of people that you knew, I think, were there. So really? uh, a lot of New Yorkers were there, yeah, a lot of New Yorkers. Um, so um, it was quite a day. It was quite a day, certainly. Uh, 
February the 2nd, I think it was, uh, 1997. And that was the introduction of flat TV, or plasma TV, as it is known today, to the American market. Um, the worst, you know, the, the big TV companies were not pleased with me, uh, needless to say. They had billions of dollars invested and uh, a multi-year plan. Uh, the multi-year plan that I believe it, it is, it was, was set out um, that by 2003 there'd be enough world production that marketing and distribution of flat screen TVs could go out or plasma TVs could go out. But because I busted the market open in 97, everybody rushed to bring one out. Everybody, you know, Panasonic, uh, Sony, uh, Fujitsu, uh, Mitsubishi, Pioneer, everybody rushed to market. And over the course of the next six months, of course, everybody got their demos out. So it was a very interesting uh, period for me. And, and also, I think uh, one of the periods that I look upon and say, I've been at the place of technology that I ever wanted to be. I'm not really a technologist. Um, but I'd, I'd found something and enabled people to come together and open doorways so that um, I was able to participate in it, and uh, and we were rewarded um, half a year later with a uh, Product of the Year award um, from uh, from uh, Popular Science, and that was uh, pretty interesting. You know, I I look at this little piece of paper, this little card thing, and I go, oh, that was cool. And uh, well, so I can remember was, being a being a kid, and that was Popular Science was uh, for a, for a kid that was as 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 good as, you know, Playboy, you know, to have <laughs> popular science was probably far more important in my but, world at that, you know. <laughs> so Playboy was one of the magazines that actually featured. There were 37 magazine feature stories on my flat screen TV. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, you, you've read 1984, I'm sure. Yes, of course. I, I, I mean, I think that was invented there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I remember the, the the flat screen TVs that watched you in that book. Yeah, and, exactly. and and here you are bringing that into reality. Exactly, it was. You know, for me, it was. Um, you know, the word plasma, of course, was like Star Trek, and the flat TV was really Star Trekky, much more than even eighty four. Eighty four people didn't always get it, but they all got Star Trek in those years, and. Um, so it was it was all out there and and of course you know with me I you know I pretty much say what I'm thinking at the time um, and one day I I'd been um, interviewed by CNN and they came and did a story and uh, and I was talking um, afterwards to the interviewer and she said so um, do you have one of these at home oh no it was actually during the interview now the story comes clear it was during the interview she said. I suppose that you have one of these at home. And I said, well, actually, yeah, um, we haven't had a TV in my house for six years prior to me actually putting the first of these together. And when we first put them together, I brought one home. And uh, I said, uh, yeah, I have it on my ceiling. And uh, <laughs> she looked at me and said, what do you mean you have it on your ceiling? I said, well, other people have mirrors. I have my flat TV up there. Yeah, I made it up, of course. It wasn't a true story. <laughs> but it seems that that was a story that the news casters picked up on and then that kind of popped around as well. Was, you know, this guy's got a TV on his on his 
ceiling. So not, not only so do, you, do you sound like John Lennon, but you say the kind of uh, jokes that he would say that people would, have t- would, would take seriously and run with. Well, they, you know, they may be jokes, but it's just a North of England sense of humor. Yeah. You know, John spoke, spoke out, you know, because that's the way you, you speak out in the North of England. Um, and it certainly would not be acceptable in North America. Any conversation that goes on between people in the North of England probably would not be acceptable in, mm. uh, in North America today. There's a big difference. So, so Peter, I, what I really need to, to get to now is is how d- did you turn from the technology arena? What brought you around into into the coaching arena? Coaching was really. Um, now we're talking about uh, another gift. Um, I, I guess I've been bringing up the gifts that have been given to me in my life. Mm. Um, so frustrated, I guess, in the early two thousands, I done some technology consulting and uh, and I really wasn't having a good time. I didn't want to travel anymore. I didn't want to have to fly to Europe or fly to the East Coast. By then I was living in California. I didn't want to have to go to Japan. I didn't want to have to go to China. I'd, I'd done my traveling for 35 years as a younger person and um, and I got frustrated. And I'm very lucky because one of the men in my life is a man named Robert Silverstone. And Robert, I've known um, for mm, a lot of years, 45, wow. 50 years maybe. Uh, no, probably 45 years. Uh, he was a very young person. I was a few years older than him. We, we got along really well, and we, we got to know each other you know, really closely, um, his um, his family was from the north of England, from Manchester, I had the same. And we'd known each other for many years. He came to the States, I came to the States. We came at different times. He came to the West Coast, I'd gone to the East Coast. But we always stayed in touch. We were always like distant brothers. Um, and um, and we always spoke. And Robert had been a consultant. He'd, been, he'd grown up in the clothing business and fashion business and brought that um, into North America. And he'd gone through consulting and had decided that his consulting was, was really, he was getting tired of that, of travel, similar things. And um, he'd been introduced by his life. He'd got himself a life coach. He'd come to California and got himself a life coach. In those days, I thought, oh, you know, what's this life coach thing? You know, what's that about? You know, uh, sounds really California to me. Uh-huh. So and Robert and myself had conversations for a while and, and my frustration was coming out to him. I'd let him know what was going on. And I said, you know, Bob, I'm going to, will you be my coach? <laughs> and we took on a formal coaching relationship. He and I, we made it, uh, an agreement on, on terms and conditions, and we took on a formal coaching. And he coached me for the next couple of years. By the end of the next couple of years, um, I had decided that I wanted to become a coach. I'd had enough of consulting. I'd really gone through it. And, and I'd got a lot from him. And um, I remember saying to him, it was a Friday morning, we had a call. I said, you know, Bob, I'm going to, I'd already taken a couple of online courses by that time as well. I said, I'm, as of tomorrow, I'm going to call myself a, a, um, a, a coach. I'm going to be a coach, whatever it takes. I've got to go through training, got to go through practice, got to go out getting clients, all of that stuff I am going to do. 
And he said, oh, Peter, he said, I'm so pleased to hear it. He said, this is what you do. He said, you do this naturally. People have always been attracted to you. You've always got an experience to deliver. And you've done a lot of stuff that, you know, that's of interest. And, uh, and you have a way with people. So I went very buoyed by this conversation, of course. Oh, you know, I can do this. I was still a little bit worried about, so, you know, where do I get my clients from? But I knew a lot of people. I'd been associated and volunteering in organizations for quite a number of years. I had a quite a large circle of acquaintances, but I didn't see any of those people as my clients. Anyway, I got off the phone with Bob, and I said, thanks, so we'll talk next week. And we had a weekly call at that time, every Friday. And, um, and I said to myself, okay, I'm going to be a coach. I am a coach. As of now, that's it. No, no consulting anymore. I'm going to just step right into this. 24 hours later, a client who I'd had as a consulting client called me up and said, look, Peter, we've not been able to put the financing together for the project we spoke to you about. Therefore, I can't continue you know, with this hiring of you. Um, I said, well, you know, I understand. It's part of what happens. You know, no problem. And he said to me, you know, I have a question, though. He said, I've come across this in my business before and in my life before that I've wanted to do things and not actually pulled it off, you know, and not actually have made it happen. Would you coach me so that I don't make this, you know, don't come across this again in the future? And I thought about that for a second and I said, this is serendipity. Only yesterday, and these were my words, I said, only yesterday I said to my life coach, as of now, I am going to go out and be a coach. I'm not going to do any more consulting. And I said this to this client at the time, and I said, I, all I can say, Eric, is thank you. You just kind of, you just put me into gear, into motion. And, uh, and he actually became my first client, and we worked together for almost a year. Oh, um, for almost for six months and then came back together almost a year later and did another six months together. That is really then, amazing. I, I love that kind of synchronicity of life where sort of like things are thrown your way based on really the, the commitments that you're putting out into the world. Yeah, yeah. A commitment. Another story. I, uh, All right. I have a story about commitment. When I decided to become a coach, um, oh, six months after I'd made this decision, maybe six months, I kind of woke up one morning and said, you know, I realized that I've had this really gifted life. I've been very lucky. You know, people I've met, um, things I've done, places I've been to, the timing has been right in so many areas that, you know, I've, I've actually passed through my life without really being grateful for it. I woke up feeling this. You know, I realized there was something really missing in my life. And I called Robert up about it, and I said, Robert, you know, I've got this thing going on about in my life that I'm really, you know, I've had all this stuff, and I'm just really, and I've let it just come and go. You know, it's not been important to me. I've drifted through, gone on to the next nice thing or the next place that I felt comfortable, and, and, and I've really never been grateful for, for the gifts I've had. And I'm beginning to see this. And we spoke about that for a while, and then about a week later, 
I um, I came to the decision that I was going to build a program that I was going to bring, a seminar program that I was going to bring, and I called it the Gratitude Program. And the reason I decided to bring it out as a program was because I decided that everything that I was learning at that time of my life, when all of this stuff was coming to me, I wasn't going to keep quiet about it. I was going to share it. And even if it meant I was sharing my own new information, I was willing to do that. So I made this decision in my mind that I was going to build a seminar program called the Gratitude Program. I wanted it to run for one day. I, I made a decision. I wanted 15 people in the room. I made a decision. I didn't want um, anything formal. just wanted a circle of chairs. I had an idea of it. But I also had an idea where I wanted to introduce my Gratitude Program. Very close to me, uh, about 20 miles south of me right now, and uh, uh, is a place called Asilomar, very close to Monterey. And Asilomar is this most beautiful um, <laughs> retreat that uh, has fabulous history towards, um, from, for it, has um, great stories about it, and has been a seminar center of worth for many, many years. And great things have happened there. And it's beautiful. It's right on the beach. And, and it's just glorious. And I decided that I wanted to do a gratitude program at Asilomar. About a week later, I'm driving to San Francisco, which is about 100 miles north of where I live, and um, going up the freeway, and I decided oh, I've got to stop and use the restroom and pull into a little parking area there, and somebody pulls in beside me, and he gets, a uh, man gets out of the passenger side, I get out of the driver's side, and we walk off towards the, the, uh, the facilities there, and, uh, and I say, hi, how are you doing? He says, hi, how are you doing? And we, we just said a few words, and we actually end up walking back together, and, and I find out that this man is um, the executive vice president for a group that manages conference centers around North America, Yosemite, um, Asilomar, the one I wanted to do, uh, based out of Boston. He was there at the local one, just doing some work with his general manager. The general manager was in his car. I said, that's amazing. I said, I have to tell you, I want to produce a seminar at Asilomar. I've made a decision to do it. He said to me, oh, you've got to speak to my buddy over there. She runs the facility. The driver of the car, he got out of the passenger seat. The driver of the car is this woman he introduced. Oh, this is Peter. He wants to do a seminar at Tassilomar. He wants to call it the Gratitude Program. I don't say anything. This woman leans over to where I am, standing by the passenger's side, and said, Oh, Peter, we want you there. I want to be one of the people in, in your audience. Is that possible? Wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. And uh, six months later, we did the first uh, gratitude program at the cinema, um, and she was in the audience. She um, actually um, was a cancer survivor and brought um, women from her group, um, and, um, and we had a fabulous, fabulous gratitude program at the cinema. It was fabulous. Just beautiful. I got this room that was all 
glass walls, a huge stone fireplace, just about enough room for 35 people. I had uh, 14, I think was my total. I decided, I've come to the picture of 15. I had 14 seats filled in this fabulous place. And that's the story of the gratitude program, of how it came about, where it came from in my thought process. Because it was there, I'm driving up the road and suddenly I meet somebody who happens to be the vice president of the organization that manages the facility. Amazing. Amazing story. And are you still doing the gratitude program? Yes, we're going to be there again um, in September and again in November this year. I'm actually going to do it uh, once in Laguna Beach this year and once... uh, uh, close to me here, there's a new little, uh, the new facility opening, a new event facility opening. I'm going to do it once there as well. I'm also working with a young, uh, um, um, a young man who's from Mexico, been living here for quite a number of years. He was uh, one of the graduates of the first program, and uh, together we're uh, going through a uh, translation, and he is starting to deliver parts of it. Um, to schools locally. Um, there's a very large um, Hispanic population here. I, um, I live in the midst of agriculture Monterey. Um, so it's primarily Spanish-speaking. Um, and um, we decided that a good way to utilize some of the tools in, in the gratitude program. The gratitude program is built on, you know, what am I grateful for? I, I never so, would have guessed that. Right. It's built on what is there that I don't want in my life. Okay. It's built on what is it that I do want in my life. And it's built on what am I willing to commit to having in my life. Four pillars. What am I grateful for? Mm. What don't I want? What do I want? And what will I commit to having? And you, and you do this in a this is a one day program. Yeah, do it in a one day program, and it's a continuous. Um, uh, you know, this workbook goes with it, and it's uh, it's open. Then you know, anybody that gets it can take it anywhere. It's theirs. Uh, I put no limitations on it. Um, you know, you you like parts of it, then go work with your friends on it. Uh, that's that's the way it is. So I keep it one day. Uh, we've had, uh, I think, three or four people come back two or three times. Um, but yeah, they're is, very grateful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you, uh, how many, do you, do you still uh, limit the, do a small group like that, or do you do them bigger now? No, 15 people. 15 people in the group. Um, it just makes a really nice-sized circle of chairs, but one that's workable. Um, you know, I'm in one of the chairs. Um, it's a workable size group. And we have a session outside, um, either on the, the deck or on the beach. Um, and we have great lunch. And, uh, and go from things that we are grateful for to knowing what it is that we're really willing to commit to taken to our lives. And, of course, 
when you get to that point, it allows for inspection. And, and I bring evaluation or inspection into what I do in my coaching. Um, I bring it in as self-evaluation and self-inspection. I don't do it with somebody else. So but you, I, you're not you're not evaluating them. No. Okay. No. And um, that evaluation is their own, and it has to be non-judgmental. So it's it is there is there are some. Uh, I guess techniques and technologies with doing that for yourself. You know, I know if I look at myself and say, okay, well, you know, I didn't run too well today. Uh, mm, that's not very good. Well, uh, you know, that, that's, that's evaluation with some judgment. Right. But if I look at myself and say, hey, that run didn't work out too well tomorrow, today. Uh, you know, I, I didn't feel too good. I, I felt an ache. Then I'm learning something from it. And with that evaluation, I can then implement change if it's needed, or be more aware of myself. I always ask the, the question, what did you learn? What did you learn? A very important question. Thank you for bringing that up. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> your, 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 your day sounds like a really, really, really good day. I, I might actually uh, see if I can uh, work one of my <laughs> California trips uh, to include that. Oh, it would be Fabulous! It would be fabulous. Um, again, you know, I, coaching is, has has just given me a spirit that um, I don't think it renewed my spirit. It reinforced my. It certainly reinforced my spirit, and um, and I do believe it, it has reinvigorated my spirit. And I thank Robert on a daily basis for where he has. Um, where uh, the, the doorways that he's given and, and shown to me. Um, it's great having a coach. You know, I, I listen to your show. You know, I come here regularly because I love to listen to what is being said. There, there are so many gifts there. And, and having my own coach is a massive gift. I, I tell my clients, I say, you know, I, I have my own coach. You know, I'm really clear about it. And um, and I don't say it for any reason that they should have a coach, but I do say it because of the gifts that I I get from having that, um, and having a man who I I trust and admire and um, in my life is also very important. Very now, I I currently don't don't have a formal coach. I have a number of people who are coaches in my life, but I I I had one. Coach for almost uh, three years, and another, and then I followed up with another coach after that. But I, I, I thought when I decided to become a coach that it probably is the most important thing for me to do would be to have, would be to go out and hire a coach. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right, right. So actually, if uh, I'm going to ask other people to to hire me as a coach, and you know, if I'm not going to hire a coach, then you know, it's it made me feel a little bit more uh, uh, authentic in how I'm going to ask ask other people to take me on. You know what I mean? Right. So uh, I know that you uh, had since you had Robert as a coach. Uh, did you have any other specific training? Um, I've 
done a number of online courses, and I am um, scheduled for a, um, a coaching credential with ICF. Oh, wonderful. So I, I believe in what's going on. I believe that this is a, a, a new society we're in. You know, we're not in the Industrial Revolution anymore. And I, I grew up at the end of, you know, in the north of England, that was the Industrial Revolution. You know, the first spinning, you know, computerized spinning uh, tool came from, from there. The, uh, the, the first ship canal was opened there. The um, first steam-powered locomotive came from, all, all these things came out of Manchester. It was this industrial center. And today we're not in an industrial society. Um, Coach Dave from Coachville talks about this as being the inspirational society, not the industrial society. And and I love those words. And I actually am a big admirer of Coachville. Oh, well, yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, uh, Coachville that was started by Thomas Leonard. Yeah, the, the father of coaching. He's often called. Right, and the stuff is great. Uh, you know, I took on for, for this year um, three words into my into my kind of mantra: purpose, possibility, and play. Okay, okay. So I want you to say that again: purpose, possibility, and play. Nice. Being clear about one's purpose. Being clear about the possibility. Being able to define those things and, 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 and finding out what play is. Play is more than a game. It's relationship. It's, it's colleagues. It's business. It's, it's associations. It's family. It's, it's, it's achievements. Um, that's the way that I've taken on those three words. And, um, and I love them in my life. I love having them in my life. I think uh, play, play for me is like the, uh, when people say, like, "How do you stay young?" Because I'm, I think I'm a pretty young guy for my age, and play is the key. Play, humor, uh, and then that includes all kinds of play. That includes playing, uh, uh, you know, carrying on the, the way you might have when you were five years old. There's there's some good value in that. Right. We forget so quickly, though, what it was, you know, about all that fun. Yeah. We get taken up by the stuff we learn in life. And then we face the realities that most of what we learn is probably not going to serve us. <laughs> You know, I think as uh, as we age, we get to see some new truths, and uh, and they were probably the truths that we saw when we uh, when we first came into this world. One of my great teachers um, is another man who I have known for years, um, from the uh, mid uh, mid sixties, um, and um, another man that I worked with for, for quite a period of time. Um, and and um, I, when I was 18, I was first introduced to a movie um, 
with an English actor in it playing the lead. It came out in, New York, in the UK, and it was called Meetings with Remarkable Men. And um, it was a story, it was a movie based upon a book um, of a man who I've later taken on, who I later took on in my life as one of my uh, teachers, one of my mentors, um, not in life because he was already passed. Um, but the book, uh, Meetings with Remarkable Men, was written by G.I. Gurdjieff. And Gurdjieff, um, to me, um, is a master. So I was lucky. I saw this movie when I was 18, and it kind of rung true about meetings with these people and traveling around the world, and it actually instilled that wanderlust in me. Um, and I became a follower of uh, of uh, what Gajif had written and the, uh, the Gajif Society and the Spensky and uh, and what they were doing around and uh, and I to this day uh, carry with me at all times well wherever I am if I'm at home of course is here but if I'm traveling I do take a book and the book is called Meetings with Remarkable Men just a book that I I just I love the storylines in it and the man that wrote it was. Um, Everything from devil to to uh, to kindred spirit, and um, and Gajif was that man. So very important. Um, I started off this brief interlude here talking about uh, somebody who I'd worked with and who had also become my teacher, um, and that man's name is Stuart Wilde. And Stuart, later in life, after we'd worked together, um, actually became this very, very famous metaphysical teacher and uh, and um, has been for about 30-odd uh, years now, 40 years going on, I would think. Um, and Stuart actually, um, without I, I had no idea, but Stuart, I guess, had gone down a similar path with, with Gajeev and, uh, and had been um, a, a follower is the right word, but certainly somebody who he'd recognized as being a great uh, teacher and mentor in life. And... Um, and I got something that Stuart has said quite recently, maybe three or four months ago. Um, and, and what he said had actually come from Gajif's words. And there were words, something to the effect that when we come into this life, we come in without a soul. And it is our job here on this world to find our soul. And we go through a lot of upheavals and things don't work and things might be terrible. But our job is to focus and concentrate on, and, and search for our soul. And often to actually enable us to find our soul, we, we really do have to divest of most of the stuff we've learned. And often we have to divest of our associations and, uh, and school and, uh, and friends and family to find that soul that, um, that, we are, um, that we are given as a job to do when we enter this world. So I guess Stuart brought these words, and then he mentioned that these words were from Gajif, and I really kind of found the tie-in there, and Gajif came back, and Stuart also is a teacher. So I have these men in my life who, um, whether I've known them or whether I do know them, um, or I've passed them or they've passed me are with me still at all times and um, 
Man, I'm so pleased I woke up one morning thinking that it's time to be grateful here. What mm-hmm. have I not? So I am going through that on a daily basis. And there were many, many years that the more I look into gratitude, there I noticed there are more and more times that I really passed it by without recognizing it, without giving it the time, without giving it its value, without giving it its worth. So right now, I'd actually like to ask you to repeat exactly the the, uh, the names and uh, titles. Because I'm I'm actually going to write these down. Okay. Well, and you've uh, actually made an impression here, so I, I I'm recognizing I need to go find these things also. Right. Well, let me start off. Um, I'm actually picking up the one of the books as I. Uh, as I speak to you here. Um, one of the books by Stuart, and possibly I think it might have been his first book and one that I've had for quite a long time. Um, the name is Stuart Wilde, S-T-U-A-R-T, W-I-L-D-E, Stuart Wilde. Okay. He might, he might have gone into hiding right now because there's been a lot going on. Um, anyway, this book is called Force. It's a, it's a little blue book and... Uh, Chapter one is reincarnation, guides, and the higher self. Mm. Uh, Stuart. Uh, Stuart's written probably, I don't know, 40 or 50 books he's got out there on the shelves. Um, very much of a leader in the metaphysical uh, world and uh, now into the nether worlds. Um, very interesting, uh, very interesting person and um, great guide for me um, in my life and, uh, and a great friend for me. Um, in my earlier life. Um, last time I saw him was just about 10 years ago. Um, he was giving a, uh, a lecture seminar in San Francisco, and I actually got to see him. We sat together and had a drink together for the first time in 25 years. Oh, wonderful. That, so that was 10 years ago. So it's quite a while we go back. Uh, I guess we were, both of us, in our uh, late 20s, um, so when we first met and worked together for a few years. What was uh, the, the other book? The other book is by G.I. Gurdjieff. How do you spell that? G.U. I'm going to have to uh, guess my uh, my memory here. Uh, G.U.I.D.J.E.F.F. I think it is. I don't have it right in front of me here, even though he kind of lives with me. <laughs> And what was the title oh, it, of the book? Yeah, the title of the book is Meetings with Remarkable Men. Okay. If, if that's on Amazon, I might actually attach it to your show page. Haha, that would be fabulous, fabulous. Yeah. Great book, great book. Just just amazing stories of, 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 of life of travels in life, of, of moving around, of being a free spirit. And um, those were things that, that always appealed to me when I was growing up. You know, I grew up at the end of a, of a Second World War and bombed, uh, you know, I grew up on a bombed street. Uh, the end of my street was bombed away and the houses were you know, in rubble and the bottom end of the street was bombed away and we used to play on the hills there called the Sand Hills and you know, we didn't know that they'd just been bulldozed houses and people had lived in them before. But getting out of that and then finding this wanderlust and, of course, having this 
movie at 19 and instilling this wanderlust yet again in me, which, you know, just kind of drove me on. Well, I've got to meet all these kind of people in my life. That's the story. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, uh, G.I. Gajif, uh, again, a writer of many books and the leader of the Gajif uh, Ostensky Society. Um, very quiet organization. People don't talk about it. Um, they wonder why. Yeah, well, um, because world leaders are 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 its members, uh, and they all and they all have some. They all want privacy, and it is a very private little organization, you know. And this work you do alone—it's about your own life. This is the beauty. These are the gifts. So I don't—I know that they don't like anybody to talk about what they do, but. You know, the book is a great book. Meetings with Remarkable Men, written by him very early on, and uh, tells about his life story and his travels through many, many years, and uh, some of the roguish stuff he did, and mm. some of the that he had to do to stay alive. Real life stories. Well, speaking of remarkable men, uh, I have uh, been talking to you, Peter Marcus, now for nearly an hour, and it's been uh, quite a quite an interesting. Uh, experience. I've learned uh, so many things about you that I never knew before. Mm. And uh, you turned me on to a couple of uh, new possibilities and ideas, and, which is terrific. Which is, uh, um, at least half the reason I do this show is for my own personal learning. What so. a gift. It is. It's a great gift. This has been a wonderful gift to me. So, what's next for you? Where can people find you, uh, et cetera? We have a you know last couple of minutes here. I just want to make sure that uh, anybody wants to find you or get in touch with you, or et cetera. Yeah, um, simple way. Marcus Coaching. M A R C U S. Coaching. dot com. Um, telephone number as well. Eight three one. Three two zero zero eight zero three. I'm on Facebook, um, Blog Talk Radio. This is the place. Okay. Blog Talk Radio. Uh, Blog Talk com slash my talkabout. So similar uh, address. Yeah, you think you were uh, from Australia with that one. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny because... Uh, <laughs> well, they do the walkabouts and you have the talkabout. Oh, well, that's where, you know, I heard about them doing a walkabout. And I said, hey, I'm going to do a talkabout. <laughs> <laughs> my shows are all about other people. I don't do any coaching online, uh, on, on, on the air. I don't talk about coaching. My shows are about all, all about other people. Mm-hmm. And... I've always got something to say. So I said, well, I'm going to call it my talk about. That's terrific. So, Peter, I'm going to uh, say to you, thank you so very much for being on my show and for the wonderful information. Uh, Thanks to anyone listening. And we will be back next week, same bat time, same bat station, with my guest, Deborah Grayson Regal. So to everyone, have an outstanding next seven days and have a great night. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye. Bye, Peter.